This is In Search of the Pluriverse. We are Sophie Creer and Eric Wong. Join us on our quest for a world in which many worlds fit. We were invited by Het Nieuwe Instituut to be the first curators of their traveling academy. You can follow us online at pluriverse.hetnieuweinstituut.nl Okay, well, let's get going. Welcome Arturo Escobar in our seventh warming up talk towards the pluriverse. Um, we always start with the weather report because we are in Europe, we are in Amsterdam and The Hague. In our place, it's eight o'clock at night, one hour before the curfew because we have a Corona curfew here. But at your side of things, I think you're in North Carolina right now. It's two o'clock in the afternoon, isn't it? Yes, it is. And what's the weather like over there? Well, the weather actually is beautiful. It's a beautiful winter weather for North Carolina, which means it's sunny. North, North Carolina blue, it is called. And, but it's about three degrees centigrade. And uh, I should say, thanks so much, Sophie and Eric, for the invitation and for your wonderful project in Search of the Pluriverse. Well, it's our pleasure, of course. And because you are related to Colombia and you write a lot about, uh, you write from a Colombian perspective, we were curious how things are at the moment in Colombia or, you know, what does Corona, for instance, do? We, for example, uh, heard about these uh, uprisings against the, the current government, but um, there, were also, there was also these protests of the red handkerchief, I think, because of hunger or like poverty that is increasing because of the pandemic. So. What is your what is your view on that? What do you what would you like to share? Yeah, the situation is alarming. It's, it's a bit like the US in the sense that it's a shortage of hospital beds, intensive care units, a lot of people infected with COVID. And as you mentioned, a lot of dissatisfaction with the government because its policies haven't really reached poor people, because Colombia has a few very unglamorous distinctions. Is one of the most unequal countries in the world. Is uh, sometimes between like the fifth and the tenth most unequal country in the world in terms of income distribution and wealth distribution. Is uh, has about eight million inter internally displaced people over the past twenty-five years by the arms conflict. In those 25 years, eight people displaced and 8 million hectares of land taken away from them. To such an extent that now 1% of the landowners control about 80% of the land. And I found this amazing statistic in a very good journal, Colombian journal, that said that in Colombia, about 1 million peasant families have less land than one cow. So cattle is a strategy of occupation, land mm -hmm. occupation for sure, and displacement of people, but also what I call ontological occupation, because people's lives, landscapes, ways of being, fields, family farming is displaced by this awful monoculture of cattle, really. 
No, those are some of, and the, the last thing that I will say about Colombia is that it's probably the country in the world that has the highest number of environmental activists killed, assassinated. So all in all, in Colombia, between in the last four years, since the peace accord was signed between the government and the FARC guerrilla group, close to 1,000 activists have been killed. So in the time of post-conflict, the conflict continues, of course, in a very different way. The assassination of social leaders and activists and environmental activists have been uh, increased. Thank you for sketching that. Also for our listeners who are maybe unfamiliar with the, the context in which you grew up, right? Because you grew up in Cali. And um, I think it also sheds quite an important light on your, on your trajectory. Allow me to introduce you to our listeners. You are an activist researcher, as you just mentioned yourself, working on territorial struggles against extractivism, post-developmentalist, post-capitalist, and non-patriarchal, non-racist transitions. You are also working on ontological design, the idea that design designs ways of being. You are Emeritus Professor of Anthropology and Political Ecology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and are currently Adjunct Professor at the PhD Program in Design and Creation, Universidad de Caldas, Manizales, Colombia, as well as the PhD Program in Environmental Sciences, Universidad del Valle, in Cali. Now, your work, uh, Arturo, gained momentum in the mid-90s through the book Encountering development, the making and unmaking of the third world um, period in the developmental discourse, which you've analyzed also as a kind of crisis of, of integrity, um, both in the discourse and in the whole notion of developmental aid itself. And you were very early to criticize the downside of development. You did so with your PhD already, which you gained from the University of California, Berkeley in 1987, and for which you returned to Colombia uh, because you were studying in the U.S., to conduct field work uh, in order to foreground indigenous resistance to development. Um, and the books that you wrote in the last decade somehow show the also development, <laughs> don't dare to use that word now, but uh, of, your, of your own interest, how they uh, maybe were rooted in the idea of territories um, and then moved on uh, towards design. So let me read out a couple of titles. Territories of Difference, Place, Movements, Life, Reads, uh, was published in 2008 and 2010 for the Spanish edition. Uh, you also wrote Senti Pensar con la Tierra, Sentir Penser avec la Terre. I'm reading the later edition in French. The Spanish edition was 2014. Then there is a book called Autonomia y Diseño, La Realización de lo Comunal from 2016, uh, the Spanish edition of the 2018 edition that has kept us incredibly busy over the past year, Eric and I, uh, entitled Designs for the Pluriverse and that we will unravel with you. Just last year, you uh, published Pluriversal Politics, The Real and the Possible. And currently you're part of two co-authorship, co-editing initiatives, which I would really like to point out to our listeners, Designing Relationally, Making and Restoring Life with Michal Osterweil and Priti Sharma as well as a wonderful, wonderful dictionary that you shared with us uh, over email in these days, Pluriversal, comma, a post-development post dictionary. 
that you co-edited and which is a great reading both for scientists and makers. So, um, so throughout your whole work, you plead for broad political visions, I'm quoting you here, that can move beyond the universes of Western modernity. The universes of Western modernity being for you this blind belief in capitalism, science, the economy, the individual. But the thing is that you don't just work in abstractions, as over the past 25 years, you have worked closely with several Afro-Colombian social movements in the Colombian Pacific, in particular, uh, the process of Black communities. And, and Eric has a question about that that he'd like to ask you. Uh, I do. I think it's very interesting that you, uh, you not only activate in an academic sense, you're also an activist. So you really try to link academic practice to activist practice. And maybe in Latin America, it's different than in Europe, but how do you do that? How do you connect? How do you activate academic knowledge on the ground, on the field, make it political, make it active, set things in motion? And what does it entail? What does it ask from you to do that, to bridge those, those worlds? Okay, well, thanks so much for the questions. And I think both sides of the question about bridging acad the academy and activism are important. And in, in Latin America, it's more possible to do it. In the US, it's close to impossible. In the US, academics work in the university, they rarely become activists in their own communities or in any significant cause, which to me is very problematic. I mean, even when they write from a left, critical perspective. I think it is no longer enough for activism, for academics to stay at that level. Sometimes I say in the following way, we need to get our feet wet. Mm -hmm. We need to really go into an activist practice, whatever, whatever that is. I mean, climate change can be a good one. Now in Latin America, it's more likely to happen because there is a more fluidity between these four different spheres, the academy, activism, NGOs, and the state. And sometimes a, a given academic can participate in one or two more of those domains, which has been my case. I mean, I've been an, an academic most, most of my life in the US, but my activism has been in Colombia, a little bit in the US as well. But to do that, and this is the second part of the question, you really have to go out of your way. I mean, it's easier and increasingly Colombian academics, Latin American academics are pressured to remain within the academy and to write just for international journals in English even. So some of my good friends, and I, I always criticize them for doing this, write in English and publish in English and they never publish the same papers in Spanish even. So going out of your way entails doing a number of things, reaching out to activists, like in my case, I maintain this very long term of close to 30 years now with a particular group of activists of black communities in, in the Southwest of Colombia with some environmental activist groups and with some feminist groups as well. And that means spending time with them, participating in projects, in fundraising, in exposes when they, their lives are you know, at stake or where communities are displaced. So it takes quite a bit of time co-authoring with them. And especially, this is very important, learning to think from within the conceptual and political space of the groups with which you are working, from within the epistemic space, as we would, as we would call it, that their knowledge is demarcated. 
in what I do, I always try to establish conversations between activist knowledges and social theory or, or academic knowledges, for instance, about territoriality or about globalization or about capitalism or about displacement or about uh, communality of any of these different subjects. But that knowledge, that knowledge from the ground, so to say, found also finds its way back into your writing. So it also finds its way back into the academia, you could say. And it makes a big difference to foreground those knowledges, as opposed to just, just thinking with the concepts and categories of academic canons. Yeah, I think the notion of thinking from is very, very important in what you just explained to avoid, uh, I think you have called it extractivist research practices. But in the interest of time, maybe Eric, we can... Because we thought, how are we, how are we gonna interview Escobar himself because we were so busy with the book? And um, it's a bit nerdy, but then we thought, why not stick to the cover? Because the cover is quite rich in language, but also in image. So in the next talk, we will um, meander through these five terms that are on the cover of the book. The book is called, I will repeat it, Designs for the Pluriverse, Radical Interdependence, Autonomy, and the Making of Worlds. So we will talk about designs, we talk about the pluriverse, we will talk about the meaning of radical interdependence, the meaning of autonomy, and then the activation of these terms in the making of worlds. But we would like to start with the cover art, and I will um, say to the listeners now that they can go to the Instagram account to see what the cover looks like. And that has an interesting background story we just learned from you, because we were really, uh, Sophie and I were really attracted to the, to the cover art of the book. And um, it's a piece uh, by Gabriel Orozco, and it's called Piña Nona One. It's from 2013. And it's a painting on canvas from, with tempera oil and paint and uh, gold leaf. It's a leaf. It's a leaf of a plant that's called the Philodendron monstera. In Dutch, so people call it the monster plant. And also well, the gaten plant, which is interesting because it describes the plant by making holes in its leaves. So it's described by the, the absence of leaves. And what it doesn't almost. have. Yeah. yeah and it, yes. But can you say something about the cover art, Arturo? Yes, I'd be pleased to do it. Um, I, I didn't know Orozco was so well known until you made me think about the cover again, the questions, when you sent me the question a few days ago. So I looked him up and this particular painting seems to be at the Guggenheim Museum in New York. <laughs> you cannot get higher than that, I guess. So I like the book. I must say that when I saw it for the first time on a PDF on my computer screen, when they sent it to me as a proposal, I couldn't figure out the connection to the book itself, since it talks about the pluriverse, so it would be many things. But the more I thought about it, the more I liked it because of several features. One was, it's a very biographical one, which is that there is this, this particular plant. It's a plant that I really like. I actually planted one when I was little in the, in the patio of our house in Colombia. I grew up in a very standard middle-class family home in Colombia. And Cali, Colombia is a very tropical city. We have this patio and I planted one and it became really huge. And I kept it and, and, it, and it was alive for many, many years until we sold the house and maybe it's still there, I don't know. So I, I like that plant, it's very abundant in that part of Colombia. But the second is that I think what Orozco does with this is to tweak it a bit. It's not really the 
leaf itself, it is the leaf, but it's more than the leaf. A mechanism almost, it looks like a metal thing. And some people, some artists in Colombia are making a lot of uh, leaves with metals as well. So it's not just organic, it's more than organic, uh, but it points out all of that. And uh, it gives some idea about sort of maybe a planet, the leaf is the planet, and we have all these different shapes which could be particular walls within in that it. planet. Mm, yes. That's a nice interpretation, but so that's what you, in the end, came to feel about it. By, uh, but do you remember by any chance the arguments of Duke University, because Duke University Press proposed this cover to you after yes. you turned out two other proposals, we happen to know. <laughs> what yes. were their arguments uh, for, for this particular, how did they sell it to you? Because a book cover sells, right? They know that, they are publishers. Yes, definitely. They just explained it to me in terms of the art, that it was a really striking art, that it was beautiful and that that would sell. Mm -hmm. And the, the previous ones, I mean, were really nicely done as well. I mean, they have their own core designers and the previous ones just were very nicely done, but they didn't really convey the sense of the meaning of the book. Uh, I remember one, there was like a, a, a bunch of like crystal marbles a sort of blowing on a, on a field of sand, but the marbles are like independent entities standing by themselves. Like black, not... kind of black dots in a desert, right? You mean this yes, one? That, that's yeah. it. Uh -huh. And, and they were too individual for you or what was what was wrong with it? That's that also was, interesting. That's exactly the, the yeah. point. They were too, too, individu too individualistic, too separate from each other. Universe is not about walls that exist in isolation from each other. It's about walls that exist within themselves and aim for being autonomous within themselves, but precisely because they are connected, interconnected with other walls. That's also beautiful about, about the leaf because I see in the holes, it's, it also looks a bit like a gathering of people, like a group mm. of people coming okay. together to discuss something. You're right. Yeah. Like a council of, a council of, of, of the world. Yeah, a little bit like that. But let's move on from the design of the book to the word design on the cover. We were wondering um, how and when did design and design thinking enter your world of thinking? Because it's relatively new for you to include designers and design thinking, especially about the process of design, into your writing. When did that happen? It's a very interesting question for me. I, I, I... I thought about it quite a bit. The preface to the book tells the story to some extent, but I can say it now in a different way. I actually studied chemical engineering and then did some graduate work in biochemistry in Colombia as an undergraduate, but I became very interested in the problem of hunger, world hunger. And that was the late 70s when world hunger was becoming a big topic, especially because of the famines in Ethiopia and Somalia and the different parts of Africa. And initially, I became fascinated with the proposals to solve hunger through technology. And that would be a longer story. And then I did a master's degree in food science and nutrition in the US uh, with a fellowship. And then I went back to Colombia. I worked on that area for about a year. And then I went back to California to work on still on, on my PhD on related to hunger and development. But then I realized that the question of hunger was not just a technical question. 
It was above all, it was a political question. And then that led me into thinking critically, not only about hunger, but about development, which is the largest category within which stories about hunger and strategies to deal with hunger fitted. Um, I was still uh, not satisfied with my initial PhD dissertation design. And so I shifted again. I, I ended up working with an anthropologist at Berkeley uh, who was very familiar with the work of Michel Foucault. So I started to see development as a discourse, as a way to systematically narrate and in doing that, uh, construct and produce the reality of the poor countries as so-called underdeveloped. I'm talking now about the late 80s and throughout the 90s, but I have began to have these this experiences in Colombia with what people began to call then cultural design or the diseño de cultura. So this term was used by the people themselves, diseños de, de cultura. No. At that who point in who time, used this term? This was used by academics and activists but not by the people themselves. But then I, I actually ended up designing a workshop to do with uh, black activists around questions of the defense of rivers and territories that was in the late 90s. But still, I didn't know too much about design at that point in time. And about 10, 12 years ago, somehow the concept of design began to resurface in my mind. I forgot to mention one important precedent that when I was in California, I happened to meet one of the authors of this book called Understanding Computers and Cognition, A New Foundation for Design. It was a well-known book. And in that book, the authors, Terry Winograd and Fernando Flores, with whom actually I'm in touch again, they coined the concept of ontological design. So that also stayed in my mind. And the question of how to transform social reality, how to transform the world, began to be more present for me again. And all of a sudden, design emerged as this possibility, as a tool, as a way of thinking for the transformation of reality. So it emerged as a tool beyond what you could already do on the ground through the activist activities that you undertook with the different groups you worked with, because somehow design surfaced as something that it could do something else, right? That's a difficult question. The something else is because it helps us to help us think in a more systematic way about how to rebuild ecosystems, communities, uh, mm -hmm. territories from the ground. Up. And also because development is a form of design. I mean, these communities, the, the whole world is being designed through design. At some point, like thinkers and writers, like Fry, the Australian Fry, entered your world and you, you really bring in and make it active, the word defuturing, like the verb to defuture. Um, and that really comes from uh, a design perspective. Yes, for instance, so what I found in design, in what I now call critical design studies with an ontological orientation, is that there is a whole set of ideas and categories and notions that I wasn't finding in anthropology or in geography or in sociology in the conventional academic disciplines. 
like the concept of ontological design itself, like the concept of defuturing that you just mentioned. And for instance, it enabled me to explain development discourse in a different way. Development discourse is also a defuturing design. It's a design that makes possible only one single future, capitalistic, Western center, center, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in design, I found a language and a practice that was critical and that allowed me to think about reconstituting the worlds in which we live again. Mm-hmm. But it's very, very interesting to hear you explain this because as a critic of the developmental discourse, if you say that design is, a, is also a form of development or in a way that design can operate uh, along the same paradigms, if you don't watch out, then you get this defuturing design, right? But for you, design seems to be the, th- the thing that's, that really sets things in motion, that is able to build things up, as you say. It has this sort of active, it, it activates things. Um, I think we should move on to the next word on the cover, and that is the word pluriverse. I grew up myself in the 70s, Arturo, in the Netherlands, in Europe. And as a child in the 70s, it was very optimistic from that perspective in Europe. And um, as a child, you wrote sometimes a letter to yourself. It was maybe that's a universal thing to do as a child. And then you wrote down your address and and it starts with the street that you lived in and then the village and then the region and then the country and then the continent. And then it was the world. And then it ended with the universe. And it felt so good that you were part of this one big universe. And I was one like tiny drop in that universe or the middle of it in that, in that writing my letter to myself in that universe. But thinking about it, that, that universe is really about the uni. It's that one world notion, the notion of that one world. And the pluriverse as a word really opens that notion up. And um, can, you, can you take us a little bit with us in how that word opens up a whole new way of thinking about the world that we inhabit. Yes, of course. And I really liked your, I guess, your imagination exercise of being in a small, in a street, in a village, in a country, in a continent, in the world, in the universe. It's nice because it, that is still, in many ways, is true. I mean, we, we share the planet. We share the universe, obviously. But that realization was, I guess I could say, captured by processes of domination and hegemony. There are some groups and cultures that are more important than others and that are better than others and more accomplished than others and that had the right or even the duty to go and conquer and dominate and educate and civilize other cultures. So this concept and that's universality, the concept of universality, universal man, with capital M, the universal human, the civilizing mission from France, manifest destiny from the US. I mean, all of these ideologies that empires developed throughout the centuries, precisely too, because they believe themselves to be superior in some sense, once in, once, one way or another, and then legitimize these colonizing strategies. So against that, uh, the idea of pluriversality becomes very important. It's against that idea of universality. 
I can point at two different meanings of the word pluriverse. The first one comes from the Zapatista struggle in Chiapas, Mexico. As you know, the Zapatista emerged in January 1st, 1994. And by 1996, they were already well known and calling for a global network of resistance against a neoliberal globalization, capitalist globalization, etc. And in that context, they produced many different slogans. One of them was that we don't want to change this world, we want a new world. And we want a new world where many worlds fit. Because clearly, within the Western world, capitalist, globalizing, etc., etc., there is no room for us, for us indigenous peoples, for those indigenous worlds, for peasant worlds, mm. for the worlds of urban marginals and the worlds of those who are different in any, in any sense of the term, different. So the Zapatista articulated a radical imagination against universality, against the universal project of modernity. But there is a second sense in which I like to use the pluriverse and we, we use it with the people I work with as well. How, if we think about life and with this, we begin to talk about radical interdependence. We think about life as the continuous flow of forces and matter and energy and life as always changing, as always producing forms. Life, life doesn't stop. Life is, life is always on. Life is always happening. But then within that flow of life, within that stream of life, humans and other than humans, animals as well, make livable worlds. Mm. Which are radically interdependent. Which are the, then <laughs> radical interdependence because they cannot be they cannot be otherwise, because the law of life is interdependence. We go uh, now to the to the next word on the, on the cover of the book. Simply explain to me, it is like that everything exists because everything else exists, and that sounds really simple. But when but that notion has a lot of consequences. So if you really feel and try to feel that you exist because all other things exist that has consequences for your own being and your own acting in this world so um can you make that tangible for us what are the consequences of this notion of radical interdependence i think you put it very well eric and i think it's one of the most difficult things for me to explain still i mean i can explain it analytically theoretically but it is up to each of us and each community to internalize that insight of radical independence, make it their own and transform their practices accordingly. So let me try to explain that. Uh, radical interdependence, as you say, is that idea that everything is not only connected with, each, with, with, with everything else, but dependent on everything else. Uh, in Buddhism, I mean, Buddhist is a very old philosophy of mind, basically has very sophisticated understanding of reality as interdependent. Nothing exists by itself. There is actually a very well-known traditional concept from Southern Africa called Ubuntu. Ubuntu means I exist because you do, I exist because you are, or I exist because everything else exists. And so in the last instance, there is nothing that exists intrinsically by itself. In Buddhism, there's the notion that the ego or the self does not really exist. 
there is no self, there is no ego, because it's so deeply interconnected, everything is so deeply interconnected that we cannot find a way to cut something just by itself and say, yes, you, ex you exist by yourself. If we think about us, we exist because we are connected to so many different webs and loops of existence from parents and ancestors to food, to microbes, to buildings, to societies, to all these different things. So that insight of radical interdependence is very, very important. Now, the importance of, the, of that concept that we also call relationality is that it goes against the conventional way of thinking, which is a dualistic way of thinking that suggests that entities, including people, exist as individuals that are intrinsically existent on their own and that are separate from the rest. So I exist separate from all of you, I separate from my community, humans exist separate from non-humans, uh, mind ex exists separate from body and so forth. So it's, it's this ontological dualism of modern societies that has dominated not only the way we think, but the way we build, the way we construct cities, the, the way we conduct our lives. Relationality then is a different way of understanding life, the nature of life, the essence of life. The essence of life is not separation. The essence of life is interdependence, it's relationality through and through. try to take that in and for, for our listeners it's interesting to know that we add a bonus track to this talk in which you can internalize this idea of radical uh, yes. interdependence because I think that's really crucial then it has to it's inevitable that it will influence your behavior as well yes definitely just to draw on two very separate seemingly separate ways of thinking about these maybe three the first one is science and biology in particular, and not by conventional biology, which is very reductionistic. But for instance, you take the work of Lynn Margulis, mm -hmm. which is this wonderful biologist. She, she passed away uh, about 10 years ago already. And if you look at one of her books, there are, there are two her books that I recommend always. One is called What is Life? The second one is called The Symbiotic Planet. And in What is Life, which she writes with her son, Dorian Sagan, she says that life is interdependence from the get-go. Wow, 3.5 billion years ago, life, as we know it, the first prokaryote cell, or whatever it is, came into existence. And ever since then, we derive ourselves from our, all, everything that exists in the universe, in the, in, on the earth, derives from that from that cell, from that early moment. So we are, she says it like this, I mean, we are bacteria in many ways all along. And uh, 
she also coined this concept of symbiosis, meaning by that, that the development of life and evolution is about cooperation. It's not so much about competition. Competition also has a place and the selection of the fittest and so forth. But it's more cooperation that has been important evolutionary and even endosymbiosis. There are many cases of endosymbiosis of beings that exist within other entities for mutual benefit. Mutuality in the sense that we are mutually coexist and help each other in coexistence. So that's from science, we have increasing evidence and from the concept of emergence in science that reality is always emergent, is, is always happening out of many interconnections and interrelations and interdependencies that create this, this dynamic that we call life. From Buddhism, we have a different, a similar notion, the notion of dependent co-arising, that all entities arise in coexistence with other entities. And finally, from indigenous peoples, indigenous peoples have known that all along, people don't exist separate from their places, their mountains, their lakes. And that's why many indigenous struggles against extractive operations like mining uh, emphasize that, that you cannot destroy the mountain, you cannot destroy the river or the lake because we are the mountain, we are the river, we are the lake, and we don't exist apart from them. So that continuity, that profound continuity between the human and the non-human and even rocks and winds and thunder is what we're talking about here. If you become convinced that life is that way, then the only possible principle for existing ethically is compassion and care. And not in the moral sense. I mean, there is this biologist, biologist in Chile, Humberto Maturana with some collaborators have worked on a concept called the biology of love. And the biology of love basically suggests that a force of life and in evolution, they showed in evolution is love. It's like, you know, like we were talking about before, love not in the moral sense, but love in the biological sense of cooperation, allowing for the coexistence of multiple others and multiple beings, as opposed to just trying to dominate and so forth. You cover, uh, in a way, you cover you covered more or less the whole book in this answer, which is great. Just want to compliment you on that uh, in passing. And also, you've introduced very nicely a passage that I would like to read to our listeners. Uh, it's in chapter six, called "On Autonomous Design," and you are citing here um, a speech, a manifesto from NASA activists of North and Cauca. So here we go. Speaking of autonomy. It is something very simple, to live as we like and not as is imposed on us, to take life where we want it to go and not where a boss, whoever he might be, says we have to be. But we cannot live autonomy without a territory, and there cannot be territory without Mother Earth. And there is no Mother Earth as long as she is enslaved. This struggle is out of Northern Cauca and not from or for Northern Cauca. Out of the Nasa people, but not of the Nasa people. Every freed farm here or in any corner of the world is a territory that adds up to reestablish the equilibrium of Umakiwi, Mother Earth. It is our common house, our only one, 
There it is. Yes. Come in. The door is open. And this text is from 2010. It's about 10 years old. Why we wanted to share it uh, back with you <laughs> in this talk is because somehow um, the concepts of autonomy, of territory, but also this idea of doors that can be opened and that can be entered really somehow speaks to something uh, which you've uh, written about in Sentir Pensar con la Tierra, this idea of to think and make in terms of a we, pensar nosotricamente. How, how did you come to understand this notion of autonomy as a, as a communal form of autonomy? For the past 20 years, there has been an ensemble of concepts that have been developed in that conversation between intellectuals, academics, and activists from different movements, indigenous movements, ethnic movements, feminist movements, and environmental movements, some urban movements. And those concepts include the concepts of territoriality, autonomy, communality, which is the fact of being communal as a fundamental fact of existence, pluriversality, relationality, Wow, I'm, I know I'm missing one or two that are important, but anyways, let's leave it at that for now. So all of these new concepts in, we can call it the tradition of Latin American critical thought have been very important in reinterpreting struggles. They are seen as emerging from the struggles, like for instance, the struggles for autonomy because more and more groups are talking about autonomy and are talking about autonomy over, over their own territories, over their own visions of development over their own visions of their lives, but they always see it as something that is collective. It is never individual. And it is rooted in place, is rooted in landscape, is rooted in communal logics and communal practices. Communal practices, for, for instance, of assemblies, of making assembly with the whole community for decision-making, of the rotation of obligations in the community, of the connection to the soil and the collective work, practice of collective work, etc., etc. So autonomy is the ability to live within that space that is your own space that has historically developed, but is always has always been changing because communities are always changing, that are, are deeply rooted in ancestrality, but that orient themselves toward making futures possible for themselves. So not giving up on their past, which means giving up on their futures, but to adopt the future of development and modernization, but insisting that they want autonomy over their own world-making projects and world-making practices. So in that sense, it's profoundly communal as well. But there is also sort of a well, tension sounds a bit negative, but there's a sort of a tension field in the idea of autonomy and a territory. And then, then there's another territory and another autonomy. And then there is this door that can be opened or cannot be opened. Or maybe it's that door of empathy, of, of love, or the urge to do things together. But how, how do these three things, the territory, the autonomy and the, the relation between these territories and autonomies, how does that work? Usually one of the critiques of people who emphasize autonomy is that ah, you want to be separate from everybody else. 
you know, you want to build your own walls, but the walls interconnected, you know, and that opens the door for, let's say, right-wing militia in the US. And that's part of, it is indeed part of a different kind of autonomy, a different kind of pluriversality, but it is, I would call it maybe a false one from the perspective of the principles of radical interdependence, because radical interdependence suggests that everything is connected, including the walls are connected. Walls do not exist and do not foster their autonomy in order to be isolated. They might have to protect themselves to some extent, but the whole point about autonomy is to be able to share and to be able to connect and to be able to realize interdependence with other walls. But the question is, and this is the politics of pluriversality. The politics of pluriversality is the fact that some walls do not want to relate, but only want to impose themselves. So the dominant walls, so this global one world, want to submit all other walls to the rules of the game. Precisely that's what pluriversality tries to change. So the Western world maybe has invented all these different doors and the doors, that proverbial door we speak about, is maybe that only one door that opens up to that world in which many worlds fit. If I listen to you correctly, yes. Yes, exactly. The only door that the West opens, that dominant part of the West, because there are other Wests within the West. We can talk about that also if you wish. But the only door that that dominant West opens is the door of inclusion. Come, we'll include you. First, you have to be like us, and then we, you will be included. First, you have to be good, rational, liberal, secular, individualistic, consumption-oriented, believing in markets, capitalistic, and then, then we'll, you'll be fine. But the door that the Nazi indigenous peoples from Southwest Colombia are talking about is a different door. It's a door of mutual respect among walls. It's a door to come in and realize autonomy, wherever we are in our communities, in Holland, in Belgium, in Brazil, in Nigeria, wherever we are, realize autonomy to be able to reclaim the ability to produce our own lives collectively. And then we can share and, and communicate and reciprocate and so forth. Okay. Well, Arturo, we will move on to the last word on the cover of the book. And that's the making of worlds. And somehow that making of worlds activates that the ideas or these notions of radical interdependency and autonomy. Which perspective you think on the human is needed to make this world that you imagine or that you, that you visualize for us in the book? What perspective on the human is needed for that? That's one of the most difficult questions, I think, because... That's why we kept it for last. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, it's always it's always a difficult question because first there is not going to be any any alternative universal view of the human. Many views of the human. As Sylvia Winter, for instance, this wonderful Jamaican philosopher, talks about an ecumenical horizon for the human. So a horizon for the human where many ways of being human are possible, as opposed to what she calls the mono-humanist mode of the human, when the mono-humanist mode of the human is liberal, secular, rational, individualistic, bourgeois, etc., etc. It's easier to say what 
that other human is not. It wouldn't be all those different things. It would be, it wouldn't be liberal in the sense that liberal is the belief in the individual and in a particular kind of property, in a particular kind of truth, in a particular kind of government, which is representative democracy. We, we have to begin to weaken those imaginaries. Obviously, it wouldn't be a patriarchal human. It wouldn't be a human that believes in white supremacy, like Mr. Trump and his followers. We can only characterize that human in very broad terms. A human that ab abides and dwells in relationality, a human that hence lives from the perspective of an ethics of care. How to realize that dream in which of a, of a world, a way of being in which humans and non-humans can finally come to coexist with each other in a mutually enhancing way. Mm. And you've, you've given in that, in that talk at Polytechnico, you also uh, gave a very clear example, I think. You said, you know, we need to move away from thinking about education, university, agriculture, to learning, to just engaging with things. So eating, learning, exactly. healing instead of uh, health or yes. hospitals. Uh, and I thought that that was actually a very... Dreaming, maybe. A dream. of dreaming. Yeah, it's a horizon. So it's a horizon of possibility. But it's something that we can realize little by little. And um, first, we have to, to think about how separation of no, or non-relationality is actively produced in everyday life through the particular designs of the worlds in which we live that are so individual-centered, but they preclude existing from the perspective of relationality. So that kind of almost uh, continuous self-reflection about how we, we, each of us and each of our communities are actively being constructed in terms of separation as individuals and et cetera, et cetera, is very important. But then moving against the grain of that, moving against that, everything we do to reconnect, and many people are doing that because we feel the need to do it. And people now during the COVID that are so isolated, I think many people feel that, that that's, that's not the normal way of being. The normal way of being is in connection, is in, con is in contact. It's almost like contamination and contagion with others and with the non-human, with earth. Mm. The transitions are always already happening. For instance, think about in Europe, think about people who are in, into degrowth and eco-villages and the commons, the recovery of the commons and commoning, food sovereignty, all of that, and different ways of, of provisioning health and healing, uh, different ways of giving birth all of that, different ways of educating ourselves, all of those are very important. The idea that Sophie was referring to was actually something that I learned from people in Oaxaca, Mexico, that says we have to, we have to convert the, the nouns of like health, education, housing, and food into active verbs, active verbs to learn, to eat, to, to grow food, to heal, to care, and to dwell. And to do that, we have to develop again the autonomy to do it on our own with the help of technology, obviously, and with you know new ideas. 
but lessening the hold that expert institutions and the state and experts like doctors and teachers and so forth have developed over those practices that have become so anti-autonomy practices. You say that design designs ways of being, ways of doing things, ways of engaging with each other. And, and in that sense, design is ontological. That's what you write uh, in the book. You've also described design as a, ideally a mindful and effective praxis for healing the web of life. And I would just like to end uh, this talk with one beautiful word that like you don't see it coming when you read the book, but suddenly it's there, disonniard. To dream design, you changed only one letter. Designar is to design, right? And you changed one letter, the I became an O, designar. And then it's to dream design. Um, and it made me think of your, to think, feel with the earth. So if indeed this today's crisis is one of modes of habitability, as you have said, if we need to come up with new ways of, of dwelling in, in communal ways, how can we practice? What's the first step to, to dream design our way towards that? Well, I'm not sure, right? And I, I think there are many possible entry points into that, into dissoniation or dream designing. And dream designing actually was a term that was coined in the very south of Colombia by a group of people in the 80s working on the protection of a lagoon, which is a really beautiful lagoon. And then eventually they ended up having these gatherings of disoniation. And so it is, it is a way to suggest that when we rethink and reimagine our lives and the world, and when we, when we reimagine world-making practices, we cannot do it with the same mindset. We cannot do it with the same mindset. Uh, we cannot do it just with analytical thinking. We need feelings, we need emotions, we need a different kinds of connections. We need poetry as a form of knowledge. Poetry is a different form of knowledge. It's closer to the, to the, to the real world than just analytical thinking that is always, re always reductionistic. Yeah. And it's also about other temporalities, right? Because dreams are, are the oniric temporalities are not linear. They are yes. of a very different exactly. nature. Yeah. Exactly, other temporalities as well. So anything you do to begin in that process of reconnecting and reweaving, reweaving the web of life, healing, repairing, reweaving the web of life uh, from its being destroyed by all of these processes based on an ontology of separation, all that we do to dwell in the land of interdependence, I think, is part of disunion. So thank you, Arturo. Let's dream, make, and weave. Thank you for this beautiful talk. This was our seventh warming up talk in the series In Search of the Pluriverse. And as mentioned before, there is a bonus track for everyone who really wants to see how that idea of radical interdependence works in his or her own life. So stay tuned for that bonus talk as well.
For more background on this project, you can always dig into our Traveling Academy web magazine at pluriverse.headnewinstitute.nl. This is also where we collect beautiful glossary entries like Dizonyar that we, you just heard Arthur Escobar speak about. Um, you can read the book via the link that we posted under About, and you can also follow us on Instagram to find out about that cover art and that plant with all these holes on the channel at In Search of the Pluriverse. Your hosts were Sophie Krier and Eric Wong. And the tune you heard was from Jaco Miri. Our audio engineer was Tse Kao. Thank you, Tse. And um, In Search of the Pluriverse is part of Traveling Academy, an initiative of Het Nieuwe Instituut Rotterdam that explores how formal and informal knowledges can reinforce each other in tackling ecological, social, political, and spatial issues. Thank you.